Are you going to make it through the episode after shoving cotton swabs up your nose? <laughs> Say why I did that. Not yeah. I just randomly shoving cotton swabs. <laughs> why else would you do that? <laughs> I don't know. To be tested. Yes. I'm just a little congested now. You sound more nasally than normal. Yeah, I mean, I sound nasally all the time. <laughs> okay, so. I think I'm allergic to like podcasting or you because i feel like every time we sit down to record i'm always congested (laughs) (laughs) that got you quiet (laughs) do i need to shower (laughs) okay we're just gonna roll into it yeah then what do you have tonight This week, I'm going to talk about the story of Stephen Stainer. Never heard of him once again. I'm surprised because seems to be a popular last name, and you will see why in this story. Really? Okay. Color me intrigued. (laughs) In a small city in California, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer lived with his parents three sisters, and older brother. On December 4th, 1972, he was approached by a man named Irvin Murphy while he was walking home from school. Irvin claimed he was a representative of the church that was looking for donations. He had asked if Stephen thought his mother had anything to donate. I think it's pretty weird to approach a seven-year-old about donations. Well, I'm assuming this is not going to end well. No. Okay. Stephen said his mother would donate, so he got into the man's car and didn't go home for seven years. Wow. The driver, Kenneth Parnell, was a convicted sex offender and had been in and out of jail since he was a teenager. Kenneth convinced Irvin that he was becoming a minister and needed to abduct a young boy to raise in a, quote, religious-type deal, end quote. Irvin was described as a simple-minded, naive, and trusting man. With the instruction of Kenneth, Irvin was handing out religious flyers to boys on their way home from school, and Stephen happened to be the boy who agreed to help. He had thought he was getting into the car to go home, but instead Kenneth had driven him to a rented cabin in Kathy's Valley. Kenneth told Stephen that his parents had given permission for him to stay the night there. The next morning was when Kenneth first committed sexual abuse. Whenever Stephen cried out for his family, Kenneth would just say his parents didn't want him anymore. He said that his parents could no longer afford him and that they had granted Kenneth full legal custody. From this point on, Stephen was referred to as Dennis Parnell. Less than a month after the abduction, Stephen was enrolled in school under the name Dennis and Kenneth was, of course, pretending to be his father. During the next few years, they moved all around California. Flyers were sent to all the schools in the district, but were somehow never seen at the elementary school that Stephen had been enrolled in. Wow. 
Like, what are the odds? Right. Kenneth had a series of small jobs and would even go away for work, leaving Stephen alone. Stephen never escaped when he had the chance because he had been convinced that his parents didn't want him anymore. Kenneth had even given Stephen a dog, which to most seven-year-olds would be seen as a gesture coming from genuine care. Just sickening how quickly someone can be brainwashed. Yeah, it's scary. Stephen never told anyone what was going on behind the facade of this man pretending to be his father. Kenneth was letting Stephen live without boundaries with the trust that he would be loyal. When Stephen grew out of Kenneth's preferred age, he was told to get another boy for him. Stephen would sabotage the kidnap attempts to prevent any other child from going through what he did. Kenneth decided to bribe one of Stephen's friends, Sean Poorman, to help kidnap a blonde boy that he had his eyes on. They planned to lure him in the car, claiming they needed assistance, but the boy said no. He then ran towards his home while Kenneth yelled at Sean to go get him. The boy was chased until they reached a chain fence where Sean then pried the boy from the fence as he was screaming. He threw him into the car and they sped off. The boy was five-year-old Timothy White. Jesus, that's sickening. Yes. Kenneth wasted no time and dyed Timmy's hair brown and changed his clothes. He renamed him and told him the same lies he had told Stephen. It was then when Stephen realized how bad things had been. He knew Timmy had a family that was missing him, and Timmy would cry out for his parents daily. Stephen always made sure he got home from school early so that Kenneth couldn't abuse Timmy the same way he had done to him. Stephen and Timmy left the home after two weeks while Kenneth was away at work. They hitchhiked around 40 miles to get to Timmy's home. But Timmy could not remember where he lived, so Stephen found the address to the local police station. Wow. 40 miles. Resilient. Yeah. Long ways. Yeah. They arrived at the police station at midnight, and Stephen encouraged Timmy to go inside and tell the police his name so they could bring him home. But Timmy was scared and didn't want Stephen to leave him, so he ran back sobbing. At that point, an officer had approached them. The police were suspicious of Stephen, so they had brought them inside where Stephen eventually told his story. The next morning, Kenneth Parnell was arrested under suspicion of abducting both of the children. The following summer, Kenneth was convicted of kidnapping Stephen Stainer and Timothy White. Over the course of the separate trials, Kenneth's defense attorney stated that Stephen could have left at any time but chose not to. Prosecutors argued that Stephen was a psychological prisoner and the kidnapping was continuous event for the entire seven years. A psychologist testified that Kenneth would switch between violent sexual abuse and extraordinary freedom. Stephen was brainwashed into thinking he had no other option but to stay. He believed that the life he had with his abuser was the only life he would ever have. He was unaware that his family had ever cared about him. Urban Murphy, the man Kenneth got to assist him, was convicted of kidnapping. Sean Poorman was convicted for the assistance in the kidnapping of Timothy White and was sentenced time in juvenile correction facility. 
Kenneth was sentenced to eight years and eight months for one count of kidnapping and one year and eight months for the other. He was sent to prison in February 1982 and released on parole in April 1985. That is so sick that they can get away with such a little time. Yeah. Should have been put away for life. Honestly, should have had the death penalty on the table. Yeah. In my opinion. I understand that this happens a lot, but it's it really hits you when you do a lot of research on things like this and you see it continuously in every story that they don't get enough time for the crime they committed. Yeah, that's just amazing. Sickening. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. It's just... How they could have such little time given to them. Yeah. And they're like let go for good behavior. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that. That makes no sense. Yeah, it's like acting doesn't exist. Well, why should that make any difference as far as, you know, he's given time for what he did. Yeah. It shouldn't matter whether he behaves well or not in prison. Yeah. But he should have gotten a lot more time than that. Yeah. Messed up system. Yeah. Stephen managed to move forward and support other victims. He had a family of his own with his wife, Jody. Stephen had started work at a pizza restaurant, and on September 16, 1989, his boss had offered him the company truck since it was raining heavily. Stephen feared he would get in trouble for driving without a license, so he got on his motorbike instead. On the way home, a car pulled out in front of him, and he collided with it. Although Stephen was going below the speed limit, he was not wearing his helmet. He was pronounced dead at the local hospital less than an hour later at only 24 years old. Oh, that is sad. Yeah, so young. Yeah. Like going through all that he did and losing most of his childhood and then going out at such a young age. It's horrible. Yeah, that's terrible. 500 people attended the funeral, and 14-year-old Timmy White was one of his pallbearers. That is so sad. Yeah. In a, in a way, it is nice that he did attend his funeral. Like, it seemed like they were still connected. Yeah. But it's just sad that it was like that. Timmy had a pretty normal life after. He became an L.A. County Sheriff Department deputy. He married and had two children. On April 1st, 2010, he died from a pulmonary embolism at the age of 35. Jesus. Yeah. It's horrible. It's sad, sad, sad all the way around. Yeah. Can't catch a break. No. After release from prison, Kenneth stayed under the radar. In January of 2003, he attempted to convince a nurse to kidnap a young boy for $500. He was sentenced to 25 years to life under California's three strikes law for solicitation to commit a felony. He was 72 years old. Timmy White testified at his trial, and Stevens' earlier trial transcript was read out to jurors. Kenneth served less than four years of his sentence until he died in January of 2008. That just goes to show how messed up the system is. Even with the three strikes rule. Yeah. I mean, because what if he would have gotten away with that? 
before his third strike. Yeah. And how horrible would that have been? And I'm sure that's happened many times. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's mind blowing that for this long, they've seen over and over that they release someone from prison and then they go back to committing the same crimes. Like you see it with serial killers, kidnappers, like robbers, anything. Especially with some of these where you just can't rehabilitate people. Yeah, I agree. Steven's family wanted a park named Stainer Park in honor of him, but they feared that the community would only associate the park with Steven's older brother and convicted serial killer, Carrie Stainer. Wait, so the boy who was abducted had a brother who was a serial killer? Yes. How bizarre is that? It's very weird. I only read a little bit into it. I did kind of want to circle back to this and do that story. Because when I was reading a little bit into it, there was some ties of him saying that it was because of everything that happened with his brother being abducted. Oh, so he's blaming his brother's abduction. Yeah, it wasn't like that he just he stuff. was. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. It's bizarre. In 2010, a statue was unveiled in Stephen's hometown. It was teenage Stephen hand in hand with little Timmy White, just like how they were when they escaped their captor 30 years earlier. It was dedicated to Stephen's courage and to all the children who are missing in hopes that one day they can also come home. That's nice. Yeah. So that was it. That was a messed up. Yeah. In so many ways. Very, I don't know. It's just, it goes to show, like, we keep saying how messed up everything is. Yeah. It's very sad that they died at such a young age, just starting out their lives, too, being free and stuff. The convicted serial killer thing, I know it has nothing to do with the story, but that really threw me off when I read it. (laughs) It'd be interesting to know if he really was triggered by his brother's abduction. Yeah, I do want to look into it. I think even if it's a small story, I think it'd be interesting to talk about. Yeah. To see how he, how it connects with each other, even though it doesn't directly connect. But Yeah, that would be interesting because it's so bizarre that, you know, if he was a serial killer in the making per se, just so bizarre that you know the two occurred in the same family part of me i mean i haven't read deep into it but part of me has a feeling that it was just an excuse he was using like oh my brother got abducted and i was neglected so that's why but it's also like interesting to me how he became a serial killer and his brother was trying to help other people yeah it's just bizarre that Someone could go from, oh, yes, my brother was abducted and I was neglected. Seems like such a huge leap into I became a serial killer because of that. Yeah. That seems just really bizarre. Yeah. You would think if he were going to use that, it'd be him abducting other kids to make other families feel the way he felt. I don't know. It's just that there are so many people that go through even worse things but don't become serial killers. Yeah. 
So I, I don't know. I think it's just an excuse. Or sounds like it. Yeah. No, I agree. But that's it for me. Where do we go from there? <laughs> well, what is your story for tonight? Much lighter. Good. We need that. <laughs> I was actually looking for something lighter because of last week seemed just really complicated with the Moberly Jordan story. Yeah. I was looking through a list I ran across a while ago of the creepiest urban legends of every state. Oh. So certainly a lighter note because I have to stress urban legend on these. Yeah. So there's one in like every state. Well, there's multiples in every state. These were the most, I was going to say most popular, but it was listed as the creepiest. Yeah. So I picked two of the stories, two states. Okay. And, you know, we've talked before that the embellishment of stories or copycatting of them, because you hear some of these stories all over the place. Yeah. But doesn't mean that there isn't a truth in there somewhere. Although in these instances... They do smell like urban legends. <laughs> what does that smell like? <laughs> <laughs> they just have that urban legend feel to them. Yeah. The first one is from Vermont. What? <laughs> I was just thinking about having a candle that smells like urban legend. <laughs> I don't know why that popped in my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we know they have candles that smell like books. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Because you can get a candle that smells like anything these days. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let me know if you find that. No, we should make it. That'll be our merch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. We're copywriting that. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, <laughs> first one is from Vermont. Did I say that yet? <laughs> you did. <laughs> Home of the Bennington Triangle. Yes. But not related to this story. Just a call out to the Bennington Triangle. <laughs> this story is about the Hayden family curse. Sounds familiar. Yeah, this seems pretty popular. I thought that I have heard it before, but let me tell it. Okay. I was going to. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird episode. <laughs> I don't know. Um, urban legend smelling candles. God, that'd be a great candles that smell like books. That's a thing. I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> I just to... don't believe it actually smells like books. Well, yeah, I don't know what their definition of book smelling is. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, first story is from Vermont. Did I say that already? <laughs> now, I'm not one to doubt stories that involve curses. Yeah. Or a curse. So maybe I shouldn't pass judgment on this one. But we'll see what happens. <laughs> Sorry. What? The way you threw the... <laughs> what? The way you threw the cord over your shoulder. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? 
What is getting out of my waters? <laughs> you were like. <laughs> <laughs> I did it femininely. Is that what you're It was just. Now you're making it sound bad. I'm laughing at it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. You ready? <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, okay. Okay. William Hayden married Silence Dale in 1798. That's a cool name. Silence. Never heard that before. I wonder why that name. You wonder why that name what? <laughs> <laughs> why the parents named their kid Silence. I don't know. Maybe it was popular back then. I don't know. It's just interesting, like you said. Yeah. In 1801, they moved to Albany, Vermont, along with Silence's mother, Mercy, I believe, M-E-R-C-I-E. So I'm going to say Mercy. Okay. Mercy was a wealthy widower and loaned William money to help the family get settled in Albany. There were a lot of variations on the details of what happened with the money, but the basic story is that William used it to start a business and was successful, but he wasn't very good with finances and he liked to live a lavish lifestyle beyond his means. Of course. Yes. Always goes back to the money. Yep. I also read that he had managed to accumulate over 900 acres of land but still found himself in financial trouble and went back to Mercy for money to help pay his debts. Hmm. Which she did, but William continued to squander the money with no signs of intending to pay her back. So that put a strain on the relationship. Yeah, rightfully so. Yes. At some point, Mercy became ill and she accused William of poisoning her. I do uh, not blame her. No. I read variations where the strained relationship made her decide to move out of their house and she moved in with a friend and then she became ill. Oh. But another was where she got sick and then left. The one where she left before she got sick didn't make a lot of sense because then how would he be poisoning her? Yeah. Unless she was still going over for Sunday dinner. Or he brought her like coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Starbucks in yeah. 18, <laughs> 1801. There might have been a version of Starbucks back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's why he's going into debt because he's spending all his money there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, she was ill, accused him of poisoning her. At some point, she moved in with her friend and neighbor, Sarah Rogers. Sarah took care of Mercy until her death in 1808. On her deathbed, she cursed the family, uttering these words to her daughter, Silence. The Hayden name shall die in the third generation, and the last to bear the name shall die in poverty. Seriously, why do these curses have to be like this? <laughs> <laughs> why can't she just say, you're all going to die? Yeah. That's excluding her daughter, right? But wouldn't that be cursing her daughter's 
Well, she's just, yes, she is cursing her daughter's kids and their grandkids because she said they third generation. That's really petty. Yes. (laughs) I mean, not petty. I don't want to get cursed. Yeah. Why don't you just curse William? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, bizarre. Does she do some like ritual to curse them? On her deathbed? I feel like you have to do that. You can't just say that you're going to curse them. (laughs) That's all it said. Urban legend, right? Yeah. (laughs) It is said that she refused to be buried in the Hayden family plot. Well, first of all, I'm not sure how you can refuse anything when you're dead. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Like, was her ghost back, like, haunting them? I mean, you can refuse when you're alive, but once you're dead, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But she was interred into the Rogers family plot. And I'm assuming you could actually go and verify this. Are we going to? No. Yeah. William continued his lavish lifestyle and eventually lost everything. At one point, he fled to Canada to hide from his creditors and eventually found himself in upstate New York where he died in poverty. Huh. William in silence had five sons four of which died young. Again, I don't know if you can go verify this. Yeah. Their son, William Hayden Jr., did pretty well for himself. I read different variations of how he gained his wealth. Yeah. But suppose not terribly important to the story. The important thing is he built a mansion in Albany, which was completed in 1854, which still stands today. Oh, wow. It included a dining room that could seat 30. Who has 30 people that they can dine? Well, they had a ballroom on the third floor. Oh. (laughs) His wife and daughter would often be seen touring around town in a grand carriage, and parties and balls were said to be a regular event. (laughs) (laughs) Were said to be regular events (laughs) at the house. Huh. William Jr. and his wife died in 1892. I did not read anything about what they died of. Yeah. Whether it was related to the curse. Didn't even calculate how old they were at the time. But their son Henry was the last to live in the mansion. So he was the grandson of the original William Henry. Yeah. Like his father and grandfather, he liked to live the high life. Of course. Of course. After William Jr.'s death, a family spat broke out over who controlled the fortune. Henry was accused of burning papers that showed how the Hayden family fortune was supposed to be divided and conspiring with a brother-in-law to swindle his relatives. Not sure exactly how that turned out, but the litigation for it ended in 1915. The mansion was eventually sold and resold and resold. And from what I understand, there was a period of time where it was abandoned and fell into disrepair. Oh, wow. The house itself has a sordid past, with rumors of William Jr. being involved in smuggling laborers onto the property and burying them in unmarked graves in the fields when they died. Jeez. And one of the owners was rumored to have been involved in bootlegging. I would think they buried laborers would be pretty easy to prove or disprove. Yeah. I didn't read anything about whether they actually found bodies, just that that was a rumor. Yeah. 
Henry frittered away what was left of the family fortune, and he died in 1910. The last family member to go was Henry's daughter, Armenia, who lived her final days in Waterville, Maine, where she died in poverty on February 20, 1927. Jeez. There are a number of vague accounts regarding ghosts on the property and claims of people hearing music allegedly coming from the ballroom. That's not creepy at all. Yeah, no. Nothing really, just a lot of vague accounts, right? So it's like, yeah, it's haunted, but nothing too creepy, I would say. Yeah. That's why I struggle with this being an urban legend, because an urban legend always seems to have that... Creep factor. Creep factor at the end, that something's going to happen. Yeah. But this is just, this house is haunted. I mean, I guess the curse is kind of creepy to them, but not to anybody who visits the house. Yeah. Maybe if you visit the house, you'll be cursed. I don't know. That's what I was kind of wondering. Let's hope not. Yeah. Or visiting her grave. Yeah. This next one is from Ohio. Just a couple reasons for picking this. First, of course, Ohio has a special place in our hearts. Yeah. Secondly, because I can't believe the creepiest urban legend for Ohio is about the melon heads. <laughs> what? <laughs> the melon heads. <laughs> okay. You know, if you rearrange the letters, you get lemon heads. I love those. <laughs> <laughs> melon, lemon. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Just something I noticed. <laughs> oh my God. They're tart, but they're sweet. I've never had one. You've never had a melon head? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean a lemon head. No, I haven't. <laughs> oh, man. Deprived childhood. <laughs> Deprived? You're the one that... You never gave me one. Because <laughs> they're too good. <laughs> I hid them. (laughs) (laughs) The melon heads aren't actually unique to Ohio. The legend can also be found in Michigan and Connecticut. Or the melon heads can actually be found there. (laughs) Probably other areas. Each region, obviously, or not obviously, having their own unique versions or variations. But I'll stick to Ohio. In Ohio, the legend is mainly associated with the Cleveland suburb of Kirtland. I ran across two variations of the story, but both involve a Dr. Crow. Hmm. The first version is that he was a mad scientist that experimented on orphans. Oh. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about how it's so common. Mad scientist. Yeah. Experimenting, but then you said orphans, and that was depressing. Well, hopefully this is just a legend. Yeah. I read that he did this out of his home, but I also read a version where he worked at an orphanage. So I guess go to the source. Yeah. The experiments resulted in the orphans developing swelling in the brain and deformities of their head, thus the melon heads. Huh. Makes sense. 
Some stories say he was genetically altering the children and trying out new medical and surgical procedures on them, resulting in the bald, bulbous heads, deformed bodies, and in some stories, razor-sharp teeth. What? How do they get razor-sharp teeth? I don't know. I think it was just an add-on to make it creepier. Yeah. Unless he filed their teeth down. Yeah. Maybe he was going to give them veneers and then forgot to. At some point, the orphans got fed up and killed the doctor. Good. I think. In the version where he was working out of his house, they killed him and his wife. I think she was supposed to be a bad person, too. Oh, well, then good. Yes. They burned down the house. But then they realized they no longer had a place to live and nowhere to go, so they fled into the woods. Oh. Another version is where the government was doing the tests on the orphans. And not having any place to put them, they paid Dr. Crow a late-night visit and asked him, in air quotes, if he would take them in. I don't think if the government asks you to do something, it's really a question. They're saying, take him in. Yes. No idea why he was chosen for this task. Yeah. But this version is presenting Dr. Crow and his wife as good people taking care of these children. So he and his wife are taking care of them. Another part that wasn't clear was they said Dr. Crow died of natural causes, I believe, but no explanation of what happened to his wife. Seems kind of odd that they both died of natural causes around the same time. Yeah. But the result is that the children were left alone in the house and the fire started accidentally. And thus they were burnt out of their home and they fled into the woods. Oh. Various versions of the sightings, some that they are baby-eating monsters. I guess stories for mothers to tell their babies so they don't go wandering off into the woods by themselves. So. Cautionary tales. Babies wandering <laughs> yeah. off. Why else would you have baby? Why else would you have baby eating monsters? So they're like, they eat babies, not that they're babies that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, they, monsters that eat babies, <laughs> not, not little babies. <laughs> little baby monsters. <laughs> Not funny if it's true. No. In other stories, they're much tamer. They just scurry off if you see them. And yet others where they are ghosts of the children, which to me makes more sense than the other ones. So before they're saying that you see them as living beans that yeah the legend is like i said there's variations of it right yeah but in all but the last one i just talked about their actual which is kind of bizarre because then that means they must be reproducing if they've been out there for a long time or, or that they just don't die may, yeah maybe they don't die i guess if they were genetically mutated hmm. it's interesting but yes they're physical beings Possibly eating babies with their razor-sharp teeth. But I like to think of it more of they're the ghosts of these children. Yeah. Rather than they're out there eating babies. Yeah. 
Sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> only because it's not true. Yeah. It's funny only because it's not true. Yeah. No, I was thinking ghosts, not that they were still living out there. Oh, that was my impression of the first variations was they were actually out there. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't think ghosts can eat babies. I hope not. Yeah. No reports of any babies getting eaten, so. Yeah, it's good. Yes, that, that would be sad. But if you're a baby and you go wandering off into the woods by yourself. That's your problem. Yes. <laughs> So those are really bizarre urban legends. Yeah. I don't, you know, Ohio has the, speaking of babies, <laughs> Ohio has the screaming baby bridge. That seems creepier to me than these little mongoloid baby eaters. Yeah. <laughs> baby eaters. <laughs> Maybe they should um, combine their urban legend. <laughs> Screaming baby bridge or screaming because of the baby eating monsters <laughs> going after them. <laughs> but that is it. Nothing too exciting. Short, I think. You think? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know how long we've been here. Yeah, it feels like a long time. <laughs> Not because of the story. Anything else before you go tend to your nose? <laughs> <laughs> go check your test results. Yeah, no, I'm good. All right, well, thank you for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night. <laughs>